mini chickens in fact I'm going to uh, I'm going to do a little clip about <coughs> Yoda my little Yoda very special being of the birds and uh, right now I'm uh, 
giving them some water, giving the littlest ones. I've met a little chicky garden. And I've named some of them. In fact, I've named some of them after famous people, like, well, to me, famous, uh, Tony Michaels podcast. Tony, Mi I have the birds, very cute little birds named Tony Michaels. And there's another one, um, I want to say Trent Reznor, but... I should, uh, to Alice Cooper, find one that seems to, like, would resonate with Alice Cooper. Actually, there's one, but I already kind of earmarked it for another celebrity. occurred to me that if I do that then uh, you know give it to them for free as a gift just because it uh, you know seems like that bird belongs to them you know seems like they would suit that person pull this down a little bit just uh or just uh just uh twist it you can down a bit So yeah, um, let's get back to the show of Midas Touch Entertainment, because Trump is going to fucking jail. Come hell or high water, and I'm here for it. <laughs> that would be a great little commercial. Latest Midas Touch. My podcast. Thanks for 14 or 15k, by the way. Hi there, welcome back. Politics AF. And we are hot on the trail of Trumpy Von Schittler going to fucking jail. Trumpy Von Schittler is going to jail, and I'm here for it. I listen to every single thing that Midas Touch Network posts. Publishes Politics Girls and Kushner. Ryan Tyler Cohen. Um, we can show, of course, that political beatdown. So let's see what's going on with Midas Touch. Have they put him in jail yet? The worst criminal in human history, as Noam Chomsky, my pen pal, describes him. Live, MAGA gets uncovered. That's waiting. Not yet. Republican leaders turn against each other. Yay. Good. 
I hope they destroy each other. That'd hey, if awesome. you're home here and your roof looks like this, you need to pay attention for the next 60 seconds. In this video, like a feeding frenzy. Republican feeding I'm frenzy. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Now that Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel has filed a felony nah, criminal nah. complaint against the 16 fake electors nah. in the state who fraudulently affixed their name on a fake nah. electoral certificate and submitted it to the National Archives Austin. claiming Donald Trump won the 2020 election in the state of Michigan when President Biden won, we now see these MAGA Republican fake electors turning against each other. I want to show you the story covered by the local Michigan News about a 73-year-old Michigan fake elector named Michelle Lundgren who will be facing 80 years as the other fake electors are as well based on this fraudulent fake elector scheme that she participated in. But here, she claims that she was duped she says she was duped by other MAGA Republicans in the GOP. Let me play for you this video where she says, I've been duped. They tricked me. It's the other MAGA Republicans' fault. I want you to watch it and see if you believe this fake elector. Play the clip. We were duped. Michelle Lundgren is the ninth name on the list of accused fake electors charged by Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel with eight felonies that carry up to 80 years in prison if convicted. The scam was bigger than all of us. She says she was summoned to Michigan's Republican Party headquarters. We were told to come. They needed us and we went and we were, we were, we were given cake and coffee. We were called by a member of the we were given Republican Party. Be sure you come. We read your help. She and others were told not to take pictures. She says she and her fellow Republicans, whom she believed to be delegates, not actual electors, were asked to sign in on an index card. Even though she was told not to snap photos, she did, and she emailed them to me this afternoon. She says it proves someone took her signature, along with the others in the room, off a plain piece of paper and transposed them to an official federal election document. We signed a sign-in sheet with our names. It fits right into the real elector ballot. Also in attendance, she says, We walked to the Capitol building with, it's all in the news, it's all in Google, with attorney Ian Northam, a Trump attorney, and we were not allowed in the building. I was an innocent little bystander in this whole thing, thinking I was doing my civic duty. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel says she's got proof these 16 Michiganders deliberately and knowingly posed as electors, knowing they were not. But at the Capitol that day, that's all I'm going to say. I've been sworn to secrecy. This plan to reject the will of the voters and undermine democracy was fraudulent and legally baseless. The false electors' actions undermine the public's faith in the integrity of our elections. You know, I figured as you think about, we reflect on that clip for a moment, if you will, I want to show you some other receipts that Dana Nessel clearly has at her disposal uh, in prosecuting this case. Here is the former Republican co-chair, uh, fake elector Michonne Maddock, who said in this uh, interview, and I'm going to play for you right now, that actually it was the Trump campaign that asked her to seat the false set of electors, and that's why they did it. Play the clip. Well, to 
see the electors, um, which the MA has to do that. I'm under a lot of scrutiny for that today. And my husband has, um, he's, he's suffered for that a little bit in Lansing because it's not very popular. Um, but, you know, when you represent uh, the whole state of Michigan, that's what I see it now. And in real time, here is another video of Michonne Maddock and uh, her team of fake electors describing in real time when this was going on how they plan to perpetrate the fraud. Play this clip. Organized and 16 of us electors got together and cast our vote uh, for President Trump. Uh, we tried to get into the Capitol. Basically what we did is we, we first got to Lansing uh, with the 16 electors and realized right away that not only had they shut down the Capitol, which we had heard about, but they shut down the House office buildings, the Senate office buildings, they even shut down the parking structures of all of the elected officials. They were really just trying to stop us. They were trying to stop the Republican electors from convening a couple blocks away at our Michigan Republican Party headquarters. We held our caucus, we certified our ballots for President Trump, and then as a little battalion in 29 degrees, we marched over to the Capitol. And what you can see is, uh, this is a state representative. We were uh, escorted by five of our state representatives who support this, and we tried to gain access to the Capitol, and we were denied. We were holding our certified ballots in our hands. We also even just tried to say, will you take these in? Or will you have somebody from the Senate chambers come down and take them in? We did everything we could to try to deliver our ballots to the Senate floor, and they denied us that, but um, yeah, it doesn't matter. We, we know what we did. Uh, according to everything that needed to be done, we certified it. The copies were all sent off to the proper locations and the proper people, uh, so we're excited to have that. We don't want to say that this is, this is not a replacement, but this is a lifeboat. This is a backup. We're going to continue to fight for fair elections. So this backup slate allows our legislators time. They need time. They need to look at what happened in Atrium County and also look at Wayne County, Macomb County, Kent County, Oakland County. And we're not going to believe there's nothing to see here. We're going to keep fighting. So thanks to all of you. Support for Midas is brought to you by Manscaped, who has the best in men's below-the-waist grooming products. That's right. Their products are precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Join over 8 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped. This trimmer is the shoot. If you want to take your grooming game, and the shed travel individual by the name of Ian Northton, attorney for a group called the Amistad, Ian Northton, attorney for a group called the Amistad Project, who was involved in, uh, in this scheme and was talking about the scheme. Here he is around the time when the fake electors are meeting, just basically saying what's going down, like basically talking about the crime that's being committed. Play this clip. Adding this to water before breakfast can lower high blood sugar levels. Thousands of people are bringing down their blood sugar what's going down like basically talking about the crime that's being committed play this clip what's in the letter that you you wanted that to get to senator shirky right yeah so this this actually wanted to be delivered to the senate chamber uh, these are the official votes uh, of the electors of the gop electors 
uh, copies of this are being sent through a different statute, through a federal statute, to the United States uh, archivist uh, of the U.S. Congress and others, including the governor. Uh, those official records are being sent uh, through the proper channels. This was a copy to go to the Senate chamber because the Michigan statute requires it to be convened uh, at the Senate cha chamber at 2 p.m. This is from the Detroit News uh, from December 28, 2022. Shirky to January 6th panel. Three lawyers, including Hillsdale leader, pressed for fake electors. Three attorneys, one whom is a Hillsdale College vice president, pressured state majority leader, back then now, the Democrats are in control, pressured state Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky after the 2020 election to award Michigan's electoral votes to former President Donald Trump rather than President Joe Biden, Shirky told a U.S. House committee. The Clark Lake Republican told the U.S. House January 6th committee in June that he was pressured to submit an alternate slate of, of electors during meetings with the Hillsdale College Vice President Robert Norton, Grand Rapids Attorney Ian Norton, who I just talked about, and Amistad Project Director Phil Klein, who is former Kansas Attorney General, the former Kansas Attorney General, according to an interview transcript released Tuesday. Shirky said he denied the request because it would have violated Michigan law. Quote, I'm not going to suggest to you that there were specific threats, but the pressure was real and the expectations were, for the most part, unambiguous, he said in the June interview with the January 6th committee. Here is a photograph of the fake election electoral slates. This is Dana Nessel, Michigan Attorney General, talking about uh, the charges. Play the clip. As part of the orchestrated plan, we allege that 16 Michigan residents met covertly in the basement of Michigan GOP headquarters and knowingly and of their own volition signed their names to multiple certificates stating that they were the duly elected and qualified electors for President and Vice President of the United States of America for the state of Michigan. That was a lie. They weren't the duly elected and qualified electors, like and each of the defendants and, knew uh, it. They carried out these actions with the hope and belief that the electoral votes of Michigan's 2020 election would be awarded to the candidate of their choosing instead of the candidate that Michigan voters actually chose. We're talking about eight felony counts for the 16 fake electors, one count of conspiracy to commit a forgery, a 14-year felony, two counts of forgery, a 14-year felony, one count of conspiracy to commit uttering and publishing, a 14-year felony, one count of uttering and publishing, a 14-year felony, one count of conspiracy to commit election law forgery, a five-year felony, two counts of election law forgery, a five-year uh, felony. There you have it there. And uh, I wanted to show you, like, who's the modern leader of the Republican Party? Like, who's the current leader in 2023 of the Michigan Republican Party? So you want to see just kind of what's happened to the Republican Party. They're basically, like, completely bankrupt right now in the state of Michigan as they've completely leaned in and gotten rid of any moderate people. And they're just a Trump MAGA Republican Party now financially irresponsible, fighting with each other, fascist, and frankly, just very weird. Here is the newly elected Michigan GOP chair, Christina Karamo, saying that American people are like dead possums getting eaten by globalist vultures. Here's a video she made of herself. The, this is the head of the Republican Party in Michigan right now. Play the clip. So I was taking my walk this morning, and look what I went across. 
a vulture eating a possum. As soon as I saw that, you know what I thought about? Us, the American people, as the possum, and the vulture is the globalist political left. And the sad part about it is most people don't realize it because they distract you with a bunch of little stupid stuff like, look at that misogyny, look at that homophobia, look at that racism, the poor people, we're going to help you all. So people are like, oh, they're for the little guys and I'm little, so they're going to help me. It's a distraction. It is a ruse. They're trying to set up a globalist system with one economic, one religious, and one political system for us all to adhere to in America is in the way. That is why they hate Donald Trump so much. He's getting in the way of their agenda. And they use these foolish little celebrities to sell it to you guys. That, Don't you care about people to stop guns? What is the Second Amendment for? You really trust governments that much to not kill us? Quit being naive. Stalin, Mao, Hitler, okay, uh, Fidel Castro, Che Guevara. Governments have done atrocious things to their people. Are you that naive to think it can never happen here? There you have it, folks. I want to give a shout-out to some uh, Twitter sleuths who helped find some of these documents, Michigan GOP Watch, and an account called The P-Tape. Um, and again, a shout-out to the Detroit News as well uh, for their reporting. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas the Touch Peter. Network. Hit subscribe. The We're on our way to 1.5 million subscribers thanks to your support. Check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch Watching the GOP eat their young is chef's level enjoyment. <laughs> Charging these traitors was such a necessary move. And such a pro-democracy move. On the steps of Congress, only got two years. On the Traitors, not traitors, like Trader Joe. <laughs> Bad. Yeah. What about disqualifying? All of them two and a half years ago. And removing.
inditing that in a, a diamond. Inditing. Okay. Comment added. Wherever you get audio podcasts, My subscribe stash. to the Minus Touch podcast. Strike electors, strike electors, strike electors. Ruin voodoo's caught lying. We saw that. Um, drops a hammer on dangerous Florida voting laws. Nothing makes them happier than the farmer's dog. We're putting a link in the video description for 60% off your first box if you'd like to try it. Michael Popak, Legal AF. Michael Florida Popak. continues its assault on voting registration and voting rights, trying to suppress the vote among minorities, black and brown citizens, with the right to vote constitutionally in Florida. And the Department of Justice has had it, and they filed now their second lawsuit and their second attempt to intervene in the case to bring the full weight and power of the Department of Justice in favor of voting rights and voting registration. What am I talking about? There's a new case in Florida that's sitting before a very right-wing MAGA Trump-appointed judge, Judge Alan Windsor, in which the um, uh, administration for De Ron DeSantis and its Secretary of State, Cory Byrd, are trying to impose a rule that a person registering for the vote can only do it with a pen and a wet signature. Sounds innocent, but it actually, based on statistics, lowers and suppresses vote among black and brown and minorities in Florida and other places by a substantial amount. Could be hundreds of thousands of people. And of course, in a state like Florida, that can mean the difference between life and death and the way the vote goes there. And so all we can do as Florida continues to jack up the wall in front of voters, making them leap over increasingly taller barriers, is that the Department of Justice comes in with a sledgehammer and tries to knock that set of barriers down. And it doesn't bode well for the Republican Party, I'll tell you that, and Ron DeSantis, that they haven't been able yet to convince Judge Alan Windsor no more right-wing ideologue when it comes to voter suppression is sitting on the bench in America than Alan Windsor. Okay, and, they, and as of right now, they can't convince him that that law is appropriate and constitutional and, and, and valid under the Federal Voting Rights Act. In fact, because they're cowards, the state of Florida, led by, led by one, they want to try to bar the Department of Justice from intervening in the case. They were fine with the Republican National Committee to come into the case on their behalf, but they didn't want a fair fight and the Department of Justice to come in on behalf of the American people and on behalf of the NAACP, which is the lead plaintiff in the case, along with other voting registration groups. Now, look, they got a powerhouse attorney on the side of the plaintiff, which is a good thing, Mark Elias, but I think it's a fair fight. Would, would you all agree to have the Republican National Committee met in the ring by the Department of Justice and not just by the NAACP with all the lawyers and briefing and precedent that they can bring to bear. And so when the Department of Justice said, we are the United States of America, as only the Department of Justice can say, and we have an interest in the outcome of this case, and here's our brief to support the main issue in the case right now, which is do these voting rights groups do these advocacy groups have standing to allow them to bring the case in their own name on behalf of the general public, yes or no? And there's a body of law that supports that. And the Department of Justice, of course, and their brilliant appellate and other scholars, voting rights scholars, they have a whole division devoting to, devoted to voting rights, want file, wants to file their brief. Florida, scared you-know-what, said, no, we don't want them 
just because they want to come into a case, you shouldn't allow them to, as if they're some sort of drive-by entity that has no relationship to voting rights or constitutional rights in, in, in our federal system. They are the defender of those rights. And so, the, they, but they thought they had, they thought they had an ace in the hole. And the ace in the hole was Judge Alan Windsor, who was appointed, he's 45, he was appointed after spending five years as the Solicitor General, which is the top-level attorney defending the policies of the governor, whoever the governor is at the time, in the state. In this case, it was Governor Scott. And if you think DeSantis was bad in voter suppression and registration, Scott started it. And this lawyer, uh, this judge, Alan Windsor, let me just give you a rundown of some of the cases that he defended, mainly successfully, um, that were the policies of his boss, Governor Scott. In the Florida NAACP, the same, the same exact parties here in the case I'm describing versus Browning, he's, he uh, defended no match, no vote, which again sounds innocent. All these things sound innocent. That if you didn't have a social security card, the driver's license, the match your voter registration card, exactly, including your middle initial and whatever, you weren't going to be able to vote. There are statistics that show that at least 100,000 uh, voters who have a right to vote in Florida, including 75,000 Haitian Americans, were not able to vote because of that particular law. He defended that law, this judge, when he was Solicitor General. He, solicit he, he defended, in a case called League of Women Voters versus Cody, he, he defended huge fines for the late submission of paperwork by voter registration groups who are grassroots and barely have enough money to keep their lights on, and he's going to overfine them in order to discourage them from doing their job. Right, and then finally, he was a major supporter defender in uh, in uh, Diaz versus Cobb of having a 29-day box that locks out people from registering to vote more than, uh, sorry, less than 29 days from the vote in Florida. Why? Why can't people register to vote a week before? He made it 29 days because, of course, you know, black, brown, minorities, and others sometimes don't get around to registering or their or outreach programs don't reach them in time to have them register so they can exercise their constitutional right to vote. You see the pattern here? So if you can't get Alan Windsor, Mr. Voter Suppression, Mr. Voter Registration Suppression, you can't get him to side with you, you got problems. And right now, Windsor said, I'm going to let the Department of Justice take a swing here. They can get into the ring, they can file their brief, and, and they can be opposed by the Republican National Committee. That's an equal fight, that's a fair fight, and then I'll let you know my ruling. Now, this is not the only case that the Department of Justice has intervened in. There's another one you might have heard of um, that's a, in the same courthouse, but different judge. And that one deals with third-party voter registration groups, 3P VROs. And the attack on them are, is that DeSantis has laws on the books that would have required only citizens be able to register people to vote. So if you're a resident alien, you're not allowed to have that job? Why? What was the connection between that and voter fraud? You know, only, only all green card holders are commit fraud in this country? And also a requirement, in addition to that, uh, you know, that there be um, no retention of voter data by these voter registration groups. And they're like, well, how are we supposed to activate the vote? How are we supposed to make sure people vote if we don't have their addresses and remind them and get them to the polls, get the souls to the polls? 
And so the judge, not this particular judge, another judge sitting in the same courthouse, said, you know what, I'm going to enjoin, I'm going to stop these two aspects of the bill from being enforced. And I'm, and I'm going to say, you can't stop non-citizens from having the job of voter registration. And I'm going to say they get to keep their information on file so they can also do the other part of community outreach and voter outreach, which is to get people to vote. Registration is one thing, voting is another. And so that's also going on. That's also going on in Florida with the Department of Justice. And just as a side note, for those that follow this oh, thing closely, Alan Windsor, the judge that I just did a long overview about, who's handling this case Sign. up in Tallahassee, Florida. The I reason we're constantly in the Northern District of Florida is because that's where the governor mansion is. That's where the seat of government is for the state of Florida up in Tallahassee. And when you got a problem with one of those laws, you run into court in Tallahassee. It's got an Obama appointee up there. It's got a Trump appointee up there. Depends on who you get, so to speak. Um, Windsor, the judge I just described, he's also the judge that's been assigned the DeSantis Florida versus Disney case. So we're going to have to see how he comes out on that one. I'll follow everything about Judge Windsor here, only on the Midas Touch Network, on YouTube, on hot takes just like this one, where I sit at that corner of law and politics. I do it about every day, pull it all together in a weekly podcast, actually twice weekly, Wednesdays and Saturdays, we call it Legal AF. You knew that. You watch me on that show. And then you can follow these kind of hot takes on the Midas Touch YouTube channel. Free subscribe. Free download on an audio, listen to it on an audio platform on all the podcasts. You can find me, Michael Popak, really easily. Go over to the Midas Touch YouTube channel, go over to the tab that says Playlist and Contributors, and you'll find me there. And you'll find my entire library of hot takes and analysis in real time that you can follow. If you like what I'm doing, follow me on all things social media at MS Popak, including on Threads. This is Michael Popak, Legal AF Reporting. Hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report? Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch, to keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. Do you think you'd be happier as a boy? Latest Trump news, um, breaking news. Reports, breaking news. Deal or no deal, Hunter Biden's plea deal falls apart in court when the judge raises questions about other ongoing investigations and a separate gun charge. What happens now? Donald Trump downplaying what could be an imminent indictment on charges that he tried to steal the election. As special counsel Jack Smith calls more fake electors to testify. And the 2024 Republican primary is a race for second place as Donald Trump remains in full command of first place. My guest today, former New Jersey governor and Republican challenger Chris Christie, joining me here, here in studio on Donald Trump, the state of the Republican Party, and Joe Biden. Good day, everyone. I'm Andrea Mitchell in New York. 
Breaking news from Delaware, where Hunter Biden's guilty plea agreement to avoid further penalties on tax evasion and diverting a separate gun offense is now in jeopardy. House Republicans had said all along that the president's son was receiving special treatment with a so-called sweetheart deal and have been running their own investigation into Hunter Biden's business practices. In fact, challenging the way the case was prosecuted, the prosecutor was strongly denied and he was appointed by Donald Trump. Held over, in fact, by the White House, just to try to avoid any appearance of interference. Republicans have also accused the president of being involved in his son's business dealings, something the White House strongly denies. But some Republicans are now using that to press for an impeachment inquiry. Joining me now is NBC's White House correspondent Mike Memoli outside the courthouse in Delaware. Also with us, former U.S. Attorney Paul Chalk and Philip Rucker, who has just been named as the next national editor of the Washington Post, which is a huge deal. And any other day, Phil, that would be our lead story. We're going to have to meet you. It's just happened in that courtroom in Delaware. So, Tom, uh, first to Mike Memoli, I think. Walk us through this last-minute drama. Why is the plea deal falling apart? Well, Andrea, what's happening right now in this courthouse behind me will really, at this moment, determine whether this deal proceeds as expected or whether uh, this does indeed fall apart. Let's walk through what was supposed to happen and what were the complications. Hunter Biden, the president's son, was agreeing as part of that plea agreement announced last month to plead guilty to two misdemeanor charges related to a failure to pay his taxes in 27 Big fucking deal. Big fucking deal. first complication as this proceeding went on this morning was Trump up charges. agreed to, to, to one without the other and that they needed to be linked. There was some disagreement about whether that was, in fact, the proceeding here. But the more serious complication really boils down to whether the case that was being Biden has whether a the investigation judge. by the U.S. attorney here in Delaware had concluded whether this agreement today represented the closure, the finality of their investigation, or whether there could be future charges on separate but potentially related issues involving his business dealings but could come down the road. When the uh, prosecutorial team was questioned by the judge about that fact, they indicated, uh, yes, that this investigation is ongoing. The judge really asked some questions at that point, uh, saying, why are we going through this proceeding at the moment if there could be further charges down the road? Uh, Hunter Biden's legal team expressing some questions about that at, at the same time, what there, where they were under the impression here that they were agreeing uh, to these terms uh, with the ex express intent of bringing this to a conclusion. So there was a 10-minute recess, as we understood it, uh, that was underway, as, in which the prosecutors and the defense attorneys were going to try and get back on the same page. Uh, but if, in fact, they are able to come back, really dot those I's and cross those T's, then we could proceed as planned. But at the moment, as it was stated in the courtroom itself, this plea agreement that was announced last month is no longer in effect. And, Mike, just to follow up here, because the White House was hoping to finally get this out of the way, not that it would get it out of the way, because the way in which the prosecutors and the defense attorneys 
indicated that he would not have agreed to, to, to one without the other and that they needed to be linked. There was some disagreement about whether that was, in fact, the proceeding here. But the more serious complication really boils down to whether the case that was being prosecuted, whether the investigation by the U.S. attorney here in Delaware had concluded, whether this agreement today represented the closure, the finality of their investigation, or whether there could be future charges on separate but potentially related issues involving his business dealings but could come down the road. When the uh, prosecutorial team was questioned by the judge about that fact, they indicated, uh, yes, that this investigation is ongoing. The judge really asked some questions at that point, uh, saying, why are we going through this proceeding at the moment if there could be further charges down the road? Uh, Hunter Biden's legal team expressing some questions about that at, at the same time, what there, where they were under the impression here that they were agreeing uh, to these terms uh, with the ex express intent of bringing this to a conclusion. So there was a 10-minute recess, as we understood it, uh, that was underway, as, in which the prosecutors and the defense attorneys were going to try and get back on the same page. Uh, but if, in fact, they are able to come back, really dot those I's and cross those T's, then we could proceed as planned. But at the moment, as it was stated in the courtroom itself, this plea agreement that was announced last month is no longer in effect. And, Mike, just to follow up here, because the White House was hoping to finally get this out of the way, not that it would get it out of the way, because they're now talking about impeachment on, on related unspecified issues. But even though there was going to still be the political shadow hanging over all of this, certainly among House Republicans, they thought that they would get the legal thing out of the way. And now, if they can't come to a, an agreement quickly, this thing is still going to be hanging over their heads, Mike. Yeah, not only is it going to be a significant complication for this president as he runs for a second term and continues about the business of its administration, to have his son's legal woes, at least as it relates to the government itself, continuing. But it's only going to add more fuel to the political fire that Republicans were stoking on Capitol Hill as they move forward with a potential impeachment charge. Remember, they wanted to see the U.S. attorney here in Delaware. We should remind everyone, a Trump appointee who was agreed by President Biden to stay in his post because of his role in investigating his own son. Uh, that they wanted to hear from him about why more serious charges were not being brought. So this is only further, potentially even in the views of Republican, legitimizes their investigation, their contention that this was uh, a, an in indication of interference by the president into the conduct of the Justice Department. Uh, but, but potentially, more significantly, remember, Andrea, Hunter Biden was front and center in the 2020 campaign. The impeachment of the former president, Donald Trump, began with his efforts and the efforts of his allies to uh, allege that Vice President Biden had engaged in some wrongdoing because of his son's involvement in business dealings. So just as in 2020, uh, when Hunter Biden was part and parcel of a discussion and legal potential uh, overhanging then-candidate Joe Biden, this now further uh, complicates that as we head into 2024, Andrea. Paul Trotton, I've got so many questions. Uh, so Mike and I both need a lawyer to understand all of the intricacies of this, but all along, not only the prosecutor, the Trump prosecutor in Delaware had been held over while all the other U.S. attorneys have been asked for their resignations, as is traditional when a new president takes over, as you know. That prosecutor had said, and others have said, other outside attorneys have said, I should say, that Hunter Biden on these tax penalties was actually facing a tougher uh, legal procedure than another person not named Biden would you know, who had paid the back taxes plus interest and penalty. This indicates that this deal and this whole issue is a lot more serious, or does it? 
It does indeed, and it represents an extraordinary failing to communicate in some fashion. Right. Sometimes, Andrea, plea agreements fall apart. Sometimes you'll be in court, and in my 16 years as a prosecutor, this happens from time to time. And there's a misunderstanding about exactly what the plea agreement is. There'll be a recess. The parties will come back together, hopefully after having clarified that misunderstanding. But the misunderstanding here seems very fundamental. Is this the end of the prosecution, or is there an ongoing prosecution? Remember that in his press release, the U.S. attorney in charge of this matter said that this matter, this case, this investigation is ongoing. For there to be a misunderstanding in court today is an extraordinary development. The judge asked the right questions. Is this the end of the investigation? And when the parties had a disagreement today, is an extraordinary It does indeed. An unfair trial. Sometimes Andrea plea agreements fall apart. Sometimes you'll be in court and in my 16 years as a prosecutor, this happens from time to time. And there's a misunderstanding about exactly what the plea agreement is. Tax charges. They're fucking ridiculous. Should be thrown out, appealed. It's an unfair trial. The charges are trumped up. Because it's a Trump judge. Duh. Biden, who are unqualified.
tax charges against Hunter Biden. Lying on a gun application over GS to do it. Should be thrown out, appealed. It's an unfair trial. Charges are trumped up because it's a Trump judge. The because it's Trump judge. Yes. Unqualified. Stupid ass trial. Stupid ass charges. Stupid ass Trump death charges. Political theater. Political sham and smear campaign. Paid for with our taxpayer dollars by the party of traitors. Okay, let's get back to the show. Fucking trumped up charges because it's a Trump judge. Duh. The prosecutor saying the investigation is ongoing. There's a failure there. There's a fundamental misunderstanding that is in and of itself extraordinary. And whether or not the parties can ever bridge that disagreement, we'll just have to see. Now, let me follow up on that, because I remember when he issued that press release and said that there was an ongoing investigation and we were all asking questions about it. And understandably, you know, the the defense felt that this was the end of it. But if there was any questions, since we were asking the questions, why weren't they saying, what do you mean, this is not the end of our case? I mean, it just seems to me that this is the kind of misunderstanding 
lack of communication that would have been cleared up before they arrived in court before a judge today, Paul. Precisely. And in plea agreements that have fallen apart, in my experience in the past, they don't involve such fundamental issues. Am I done with this investigation or is the investigation still ongoing? That kind of failure to communicate or to understand is unusual. And where that breakdown in communication took place, we can't say or know exactly, except that in defense of the prosecutors, it was in their very press release. So that's unusual. And the judge was trying to get to the bottom of why are we entering into a plea agreement today that will resolve the tax and the gun issue if there is an ongoing investigation. And the parties apparently hadn't fully discussed or understood the answer to that question. That's an embarrassment. To whom it is that embarrassment falls, the government, the prosecutors, or the defense attorneys, we don't yet know. But it is extraordinarily unfortunate for everyone involved that on a case with this kind of high profile, this sort of failing would take place. Phil Rucker, you're going to earn your stripes as the incoming national editor here to make sense of all of this, because politically, this could not be worse for the White House. Trying to, you know, put this off to a side, say it's the son, you know, he's paid his dues, he's gone through rehab, yeah, all, every family a has alone. a troubled member, everyone can relate to this, the middle class person that we're appearing to can relate to it. I mean, you've heard it, I've heard it, and it, it resonates to all of us. Yeah. We know we're just trying to score points with your little fascist strategies and smear campaigns. But he's a fucking private citizen. Y'all should have been charged with insurrection and removed from office long ago. And then you, so, and you would just do, have to shut the fuck up. Hey, Republican assholes. We know you're just trying to score points with your little, uh, political points with your... Fascist strategies and fascist smear campaigns against the president's son, but he's a fucking private citizen. 
Y'all should have been charged with insurrection and moved from office long ago. Yes, Trista. Trista for press. Trump for prison. Against protests. Son, right? He's a private citizen. Should have been charged with insurrection. And removed from office long ago. You know your ass. Shoulda, shoulda, woulda, coulda. Republican assholes. Here's a mess at comedy by Trista. Okay, hey Republican assholes. You know you're just trying to tear down the prize. There are 2,700 robocalls made every second in the U.S. You might have been on the receiving end of one today. Yeah, there are dozens of apps that... It resonates to all of us. Yet, here they are with this overshadowing them in election year, going into election year. Exactly, Andrea. Our, our team at the Post is certainly going to be trying to figure out exactly uh, what is going on at the Justice Department in terms of uh, this investigation, which, as you noted, uh, was said to have been ongoing a few weeks ago when this plea deal was announced. But this is a huge political headache for President Biden just at the moment when the presidential campaign is beginning to intensify. Mike alluded to the right to the, uh, the pressure from House Republicans on Capitol Hill to continue looking into Hunter Biden, uh, to scrutinize uh, the FBI and the Justice Department for how they have investigated Hunter Biden the last few weeks and the alleged uh, sweetheart deal as Republicans see it. Uh, but this is just all going to continue uh, to be pretty uh, murky territory for the president as he really hopes to put this all in his rearview mirror and focus on the reelection campaign. There was even some speculation, and it was just speculation, that we were waiting for the potential indictment. We'll be talking about that in just a few minutes. The potential indictment on the major case, the federal case of trying to overturn the election against Donald Trump. 
and that there was some thought that, well, even though we received a target letter last week, they were going to wait until this got all cleared away so that, you know, they would not have that distraction. Who's politically, I guess Jack Smith doesn't think about politics, but someone does. In any case, that's another whole, whole issue. Mike Memory, let's talk about the White House, because for them, this is really a mess. You know, to use a legal term, because we've got high-priced lawyers, well-known lawyers, we know all of them, and this, you would think that when the prosecution put out that news release that they got some clarification about what the ongoing... Hey there, welcome back. We're listening to breaking news on MSNBC. In terms of the familial reaction of a president and the first lady as it relates to their son, they were looking at this as uh, the beginning of the end of a long a process of recovery for their son. Remember, the, the son's uh, Hunter Biden's own admission of his uh, battles with substance abuse and addiction uh, begin with the death of his brother Bo in 2015. Uh, some of these tax charges stem from uh, what he acknowledged again in court today was uh, an addiction that continued until 2019. And so this was the hope, and it when the public statements we've received from the White House, again, an indication of they support their son and they're proud of their son. Uh, and so they are they, they are certainly looking at this first and foremost through that lens. On the part of the White House team, though, more broadly, as they look ahead as well to a re-election campaign, uh, I think this will only exacerbate tensions that we at NBC News have been reporting about between the president's own uh, team and Hunter Biden's legal team. Abby Lowell, somebody who was brought on uh, more recently into this process, a high-profile lawyer in Washington, to be sure, but there was a sense uh, among some of the president's advisors that he was taking uh, the, the way he handled this case both legally and in terms of public opinion and trying to shape public opinion in a direction that was not necessarily aligned with the president's political interests. And so to the degree that there is a miscommunication, a failure to understand on the part of Hunter Biden's legal team exactly what they were entering into, uh, with the potential the fact that this might in their view have been the end, but in the view of the government was just an interim step, that will certainly only inflame the the sense in the White House uh, that Hunter Biden was not necessarily getting the best uh, both legal and political advice here. And Paul Charlton, so is this potentially the start or the end of Hunter Biden's legal troubles? It's certainly a worse day for Mr. Biden than it is for the prosecution. A bad day for everyone in court today. But Mr. Biden now has a clarification, if ever there was real confusion, that this is an ongoing investigation. Whatever deal he hoped to achieve, whatever bargain he hoped to receive from these misdemeanor tax charges and And I have one follow-up here, which is, would there be an option if they decide to take this chance if they realize now that they can't settle everything today, to separate it, which is something they didn't agree to before that break, separate the tax from the gun. Is there any option from what you saw from this courtroom today to settle one of them and not the other, and then also have to deal with the ongoing investigation? I suspect the opportunity to resolve the tax and gun charges are not removed. But in typical prosecution practice, deals get worse for the defendant as you move forward in time, not better. So it wouldn't be unusual for the defense attorneys to go back to the prosecutors and say, can we still achieve what we wanted to achieve in court today? And for the prosecutors to say, yes, but there'll be a greater cost to you. We'll just have to see now what happens. And I suspect there's going to be a fair amount of discussion 
about how it is a high-profile, highly publicized, important case like this one fell apart because of a basic misunderstanding of so important an issue as whether or not an investigation was ongoing. Mike Memoli, let's talk again. You and Phil Rucker, uh, let me bring Phil in first, actually, about the politics of this related to the possibility of a Trump indictment and how they were trying to deal with that, as well as put to bed this impeachment inquiry. Phil? Yeah, yeah, Andrea, that, the, the first thing to be clear about is the Justice Department uh, separates these investigations. So the Hunter Biden probe has been taking place under the leadership of the U.S. attorney uh, in Delaware, whereas the Trump investigation has been a special counsel probe led by Jack Smith. And, and you know, they have maintained uh, through Justice Department sort of norms and practices to not let the kind of politics or timing of the two influence one another. That being said, they're all playing out in, in the same political landscape and on the same calendar here. And certainly, um, you know, there, there could be some complicated politics if this Biden investigation continues and even intensifies uh, in the weeks ahead at the same time that we widely expect uh, federal charges to come uh, against President Trump, former President Trump, for his role uh, in trying to overturn the 2020 election. Uh, that, uh, you know, he received that target letter uh, recently, and we expect that indictment any day now. And that certainly... Uh, will, you know, have an impact on the Republican presidential nomination race. And insofar in, in as it could end up solidifying some support for Trump, as we've seen uh, with these past indictments, but it's just a reminder that the work of federal prosecutors is very much shaping the politics of the moment uh, as the presidential race gets underway. No, absolutely. I think Garrett Haig, who covers Trump as well as Capitol Hill and is familiar with what's going on with the speaker and impeachment, uh, is with us as well. Garrett, um, this is you know, an extraordinary development. It's very rare that a plea deal is rejected by a judge. Mm -hmm. But the handwriting was on the wall in that press release, which we were all asking about at the time, that this was an ongoing investigation. And we were all saying, what is the ongoing investigation about? And then, of course, the Republicans, as you know and cover them every day, seized on the fact that there are business dealings that they want to investigate, and they're trying to connect it to Joe Biden, the president. Yeah, that's right, Andrea. I think congressional Republicans and the Republican presidential candidates are going to be tripping over themselves to be talking about uh, this plea deal falling apart and uh, continuing to highlight the Hunter Biden's issues as a way to damage Joe Biden. There was a lot of frustration in Republican circles that the initial announcement of this plea deal uh, didn't get much coverage, didn't get much uh, kind of the deep dive treatment from the national media in a way that the fact that it is now falling apart almost certainly will. I expect you'll hear a lot about this from Donald Trump on social media. And I suspect this will add fuel to that impeachment inquiry push that we're seeing on Capitol Hill from congressional Republicans. I mean, it's been interesting to watch uh, this House Republican majority approach the Hunter Biden issue because the investigative committees, the ones that you would really expect to be doing most of the digging on this, whether it be judiciary or oversight or this new weaponization subcommittee, have kind of failed to come up with anything particularly compelling as relates to Hunter Biden. But it was this 
this IRS whistleblower that the Ways and Means, the tax writing committee, produced a couple of weeks ago that's gotten a lot of attention, that's pushed House Republicans to the edge of opening an impeachment inquiry, uh, and an edge I think they're going to be very hard-pressed to back off from uh, once they get started. And a development like what we're seeing now today, I think, is only going to add to that. They want to keep this story in the headlines, even though for now it's entirely about Hunter Biden, the hope springs eternal among Republican elected officials and would-be elected officials that somewhere they will find a proper nexus to Joe Biden that they can use against him in 2024. Uh, Brandon Buck, Garrett, is also with us, who, as you know well, uh, worked with two previous speakers. What do you think, Brandon, about not only this development, but how it fuels what Kevin McCarthy has been trying to do to get some you know, momentum behind uh, under pressure from certainly the right-wing members of his caucus to start an impeachment inquiry, something that is not very popular with the Senate. Yeah, I mean, I think you can look at this situation in two ways. I mean, the House Republicans were alleging that Hunter Biden was let off the hook on his foreign business dealings. And I think now we know that's not necessarily the case. And you would think that may uh, take some wind out of their sails. But I imagine uh, they're going to look at it quite differently. They're going to say, aha, look, Hunter Biden is still being invented, uh, investigated for these, these business dealings. And as long as this is hanging out there, they're going to continue uh, banging that drum. I mean, I think ultimately, even if no further charges are brought, they'll return right to that allegation that there, there must be something fishy going on here. But, you know, the white whale for them is the idea that Hunter Biden was involved in some type of uh, illegal business deals on behalf of foreign governments, and Joe Biden was involved. I think they will now try to make the argument that possibility is still alive if there is an active investigation. So all of this just gets them all more, more spun up. The more Hunter Biden is in the news for doing potentially illegal acts, the more pressure Kevin McCarthy is going to feel. Um, all of it adds to a, a state of confusion in the House because you know, ultimately if you're going to bring articles of impeachment, there need to be uh, clear evidence. Uh, Thanks to being an American, I got a completely new gutter guard system. The nationwide gutter website makes it. A president trying to overturn an election, which will, you know, in some way be one of the charges. It'll be you know, fashioned into the charges, but it's the whole issue of a president of the United States refusing to, tur to concede an election and going to great lengths to say nothing of what happened on January 6th with a president's son being involved in some shady business deals. 
you know, allegedly, and uh, admitting to, you know, not paying taxes and ha having an improper gun lie or a fraudulent comment on a gun application, not admitting his addiction. Uh, find some proof. Okay, let's go see. Uh, Any case, yeah. um, we're gonna let's take a rest go here. See. Giuliani gives up with devastating admission. Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Donald Trump's co-conspirator Rudy Giuliani just stipulated to liability in a defamation lawsuit brought against him by former Georgia election workers. Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, who Rudy Giuliani, along with Donald Trump, spread vicious lies about. I want to show you the stipulation that Rudy Giuliani just filed in a federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., before federal judge Beryl Howell, where Rudy Giuliani stipulates to liability, basically meaning that he did it. And I want to show you the statement from... Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss's lawyers. I want to show you the statement from Rudy Giuliani's lawyers, which is perplexing, giving the stipulation that I'm about to read for you where Rudy Giuliani stipulates to liability. This is a document filed in federal court in Washington, D.C. just before. Whereas defendant Giuliani believes that he has legal defenses to this complaint and whereas defendant Giuliani is desirous to avoid unnecessary expenses in litigating what he believes to be unnecessary disputes. Now, it is hereby stipulated solely for the purposes of this litigation that Defendant Giuliani, for the purposes of deciding this case on the legal issues and recognizing that all other defendants previously identified in the complaint have resolved their claims with all plaintiffs and without admitting to the truth of the allegations, hereby does not contest the following allegation. So when you just remove a lot of the extra verbiage here, what it is saying is Rudy Giuliani hereby stipulates that uh, he does not contest the following allegations. What are those allegations? One, defendant Giuliani concedes solely for purposes of this litigation mm -hmm. before this court and on appeal that defendant Giuliani made the statements of and concerning plaintiffs which include all of the statements detailed in plaintiff's amended complaint, and he does not dispute for purposes of this litigation that the statements carry meaning that is defamatory per se. So Giuliani is admitting, admitting to all of the defamatory statements um, that were alleged to have been committed in the complaint. And he's saying, yes, I made these statements, and yes, they carry meaning that is defamatory per se. In other words, he's stipulating that the statements were and constitute defamation. Two, that defendant Giuliani, for the purposes of this litigation only, published those statements to third parties. That's another element of a defamation claim. 
Three, that defendant Giuliani, for the purposes of this litigation only, does not contest that to the extent the statements were statements of fact and otherwise actionable, such actionable factual statements were false. This stipulation does not affect Giuliani's ability to seek set-off, offset, or settlement credit, or his argument that his statements are constitutionally protected statements or opinions or any applicable statute of limitations or that Giuliani's statements, in fact, cause plaintiffs any damages and the amount of any alleged damages which Giuliani's statements may have caused or any other legal defense not expressly waived by this stipulation. So what Rudy Giuliani is saying is that he does not contest uh, to the extent the statements were statements of fact and otherwise actionable, that such actionable factual statements were false. So he's admitting the statements were false. In the previous paragraph, he's admitting that the statements were defamatory per se. He's admitting that the statements were transmitted to third parties. Folks, those are all of the elements of a defamation claim. The only thing that he is preserving, which is curious, is he's saying, even though I made defamatory statements, he says that he will still preserve his defense that what he said was an opinion or that he was otherwise constitutionally permitted to make those defamatory statements. But it's kind of internally inconsistent because the Constitution does not protect defamatory statements. Yes, of course, there is a First Amendment freedom of speech, but that does not protect defamations, and you can be sued for defamation. So I'm not quite sure the point of saying that, unless it makes Rudy Giuliani feel better, or that he can go back to his base and say, well, I did say I was preserving the constitutionality defense, even though that's not really a defense he could avail himself to at this, at this point. And then four. That defendant Giuliani does not contest solely for the purpose of this litigation, including on any appeal in this litigation, the factual elements of liability subject to any retained affirmative defenses not expressly waived herein regarding plaintiff's claim for intentional infliction of emotional distress and other related tort claims. This stipulation does not affect Giuliani's ability to seek a set-off, offset, or settlement credit, or his argument that his statements are constitutionally protected statements, or opinions, or any applicable statute of limitations, or that Giuliani's conduct, in fact, caused plaintiff any damages and the amount of any alleged damages Giuliani's conduct may have caused, or any other legal defenses not expressly waived by the stipulation. So really what that paragraph is just adding is that in addition to defamation, uh, Rudy Giuliani is stipulating to other claims uh, that are being asserted or may be asserted by Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss as well, such as intentional infliction of emotional distress, which is a separate cause of action in addition to defamation or any other cause of action that Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss assert. And again, Giuliani says, well, he preserves affirmative defenses like that, oh, it was constitutionally protected or that it was an opinion, but that's not something that um, is going to be able to be validly uh, asserted. Estás disfrutando de mi podcast? Thanks to Babbel, I know what that means. Do you? One in five Americans have a learn a new language on their bucket list. Now, if that's you, check it off the list this summer with Babbel. Because with Babbel, you start speaking a new language in just three weeks. That's right. This summer, you can start speaking Blood a new language with Babbel. Full semester at college with over 10... It's like OAN and OAN settled. 
ultimately, if Ruby Freeman and slash Midas rules and restrictions may apply. Also, he mentions there um, he preserves his right for kind of settlement set-offs, and all that means is that because this case was also brought against other people and other entities like OAN and OAN settled, ultimately, if Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss are seeking, uh, I'm making this number up, say $10 million, um, and they say that's all their damages are, and OAN ultimately settled for the full $10 million. Well, before a jury, that may constitute a full and complete set-off. They've been completely compensated for their damages, or one of the things a jury could balance is the relative proportion of liability between, let's say, OAN and Giuliani. Is it 70-30? Is it 80-20%? Who's paying more? Who's paying less? But in a case like this, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss are probably claiming tens of millions of dollars uh, based on the defamatory conduct directed their way. So any set-off of offset is going to be so de minimis in a case like this um, as to have no impact at all. Just so you know, like, why was Rudy Giuliani filing the stipulation that he just wake up one day and go, I'm going to file a stipulation admitting to liability? The backstory we've covered in detail here of the Midas Touch Network, I'll just give you the brief summary of it. Uh, Rudy Giuliani was sanctioned by this federal judge, Judge Beryl Howell, for his discovery abuses. He was called out for intentionally spoliating or destroying evidence or recklessly spoliating the evidence so that critical emails and communications were not turned over. Rudy Giuliani has been separately sanctioned by Judge Beryl Howell, about $80,000 for his abuses in this case and not turning over documents and not conducting the searches. So Rudy Giuliani would either continue to be sanctioned. One of the things that the judge held out the prospect of was contempt against Rudy Giuliani or essentially making the findings that Rudy Giuliani was liable and responsible anyway. And so Rudy Giuliani wanted to basically stop the bleeding from his discovery abuses and by stipulating to the liability, he doesn't have to turn over those. The documents become irrelevant, and the case just goes to damages on a civil case. So now, before a jury, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss's lawyers will tell the jury, look, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, he stipulated that he engaged in this conduct, that it's false and defamatory. You don't need to even decide liability anymore. You just will be deciding the damages here. How much money does Rudy Giuliani owe them for what they did? That's what Rudy Giuliani did. Um, he's still going to owe sanctions. It doesn't really alleviate the sanctions, but it stops more sanctions from discovery abuse. But ultimately, now a liability is admitted to. If you go to, let me pull up this statement right now by Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss's lawyers, um, and they accurately say what the stipulation is. Giuliani's stipulation concedes what we have always known to be true. Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss honorably performed their civic duties in the 2020 presidential election in full compliance with the law and the allegations of election fraud that he and former President Trump made against them have been false since day one, said Michael Gottlieb, partner at Wilkie Farr and Gallagher LLP, quote, while certain issues, including damages, remain to be decided by the court, 
Our clients are pleased with this major milestone in their fight for justice and look forward to presenting what remains of this case at trial. Meanwhile, Rudy Giuliani's lawyers basically misrepresented uh, what they did in that stipulation, but that shouldn't be surprising. And they said, quote, Mayor Rudy Giuliani did not acknowledge, like they still call him mayor, like mayor 30 years ago, dude. Mayor Rudy Giuliani did not acknowledge that the statements were false, but did not contest it in order to move on to the portion of the case that will permit a motion to dismiss. Sorry, I had to read that again. It's like, what? He's saying, Mayor Rudy Giuliani did not acknowledge that the statements were false, but did not contest it in order to move on to the portion of the case that will permit a motion to dismiss. This is a legal issue, not a factual issue. Those out to smear the mayor <laughs> are ignoring the fact that this stipulation is designed to get to the legal issues of the case. Ted Goodman, political advisor to Giuliani, I guess the lawyer couldn't even do it. Um, so they had a political advisor do it. But look, that's why we read the court documents together here so that you can see it for yourself, and then we could just live in a fact-based evidence world. This is what Giuliani said. You know, and, and one working theory that I have as well, and I've seen some other commentators you know, say this as well, is that Rudy Giuliani's cooperating with special counsel Jack Smith and probably has already admitted to lying about Freeman and Shea Moss as part of his proper agreement to Jack Smith anyway. And so if he's already admitted to Jack Smith that he uh, engaged in defamation, that proper agreement uh, would be void if Rudy Giuliani was lying. And so I think Rudy Giuliani also had to kind of make this stipulation as well in the civil case. You know, otherwise it would undermine his proper agreement if he was contesting liability. And then I think that would potentially result in additional charges being brought against him or a longer uh, sentencing in the event he's convicted. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Hit subscribe. We're on our way to 1.5 million subscribers thanks to your support. Check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Wherever you get audio podcasts, subscribe to the Midas Touch podcast. Have a great day. Hit subscribe. Hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report. Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram. At right. She don't need no Instagram. She just uses Shane and Graham. Rudy should pay dearly for defaming the ladies that were just doing their work. Trump for prison. He wants his white privilege to defame a person of color, restored without consequences, hold him accountable, civilly and criminally if possible. This is setting a precedent for all of us that work the elections. What was done to Rupert Freeman and Shea Moss was reprehensible. It's inciting terrorism.
against all these people. All of them should have been in prison two and a half years ago. presidential candidate 2024 right I call for additional charges of inciting terrorists against all these people who orchestrated the January 6th insurrection. All of them should have been in prison two and a half years ago. This is let's see other comments. Despicable what he did to these two later ladies. Fucking destroyed their lives. Total failure of a human being. Rudy is. He has no moral compass. Life in prison for traitor Giuliani. Christopher Price, Trump for prison. Did they disbar Giuliani at Vote Blue? Get rid of them all. I cannot, I refuse to just wait till the elections. No. They should have been gone two and a half years ago. Might have such as live, Mega Uncovered. Fucking majority 54, Folks, though. Folks. Chip into my campaign today. No. We made a lot of progress. We got a lot more. Yeah, like I promised not to ask you for any money for my political campaigns. Promise not, and I promise not to accept. Holy shit. And uh, I promise not to accept any PAC money. The decision that I mean, I'm going to leave. Money. I'm going to split with these people. So when all when the Freedom Caucus opposed McCarthy for speaker, Green split with them and made the decision. I'm going to get in bed, maybe literally, with Kevin yeah, McCarthy. And I don't like majority fifty-four that much. I want to take a nap. Featured contributors, Ben Marcellus, where's the top, here it is, top, top experts, indictment roadmap, here we go, here it is. This was just Welcome to a special edition of Legal AF. I'm Karen Agnifilo, and I'm joined today by Danya Perry, who's an amazing ex-prosecutor. This is called Exclusive from the Top Prosecutors Deliver Brilliant Outline for Prosecuting Trump current lawyer, close friend of mine, and we are going to talk about and break 
By the way, KPYT, Beth Loyaki, Tribal Radio, Tribal Radio. Break down all things indictment, all things Trump, all things that's going on. And so we're really excited to be able to explain to everybody exactly what's happening because so much is going on. It gets really confusing. So let's just talk about where we are. There are so many court cases going on involving Donald Trump that it's hard to keep track of them all. And what's really confusing for some people is that there are both criminal cases and civil cases. Now, what's the difference between a criminal case and a civil case? A criminal case is something where it's brought by the government and by a prosecutor, whether it's a state prosecutor, a local prosecutor, or the Department of Justice, if it's a federal prosecution, and somebody can be punished by the government and they can go to jail or prison. That's what criminal is, and you have a criminal record and a rap sheet. You're gonna say to me, but wait a minute, I don't understand. There are some cases being brought by the government, i.e. attorneys general, like Letitia James, who is the attorney general of the state of New York, and she has a case against Donald Trump, his sons, because remember, Ivanka Trump was taken out of that case, and that's a big case starting in October, here in New York, and that's a big civil case. So that can get really confusing, right? How can the government bring a civil case? Now, a civil case is different than a criminal case because that can be brought by usually a private person or a private individual, but also sometimes the government like an attorney general. And that case is civil, meaning the only penalties can be things like monetary penalties or other sanctions uh, and restrictions on doing business in New York, but not jail or prison. And there's no criminal record associated with that case. There's another civil case too that just happened in Michigan where the Michigan attorney general brought uh, charges against 16 fake electors. Now that was a criminal case, right? So attorneys general can bring criminal cases and civil cases. So then there's other civil cases against Donald Trump, right? E. Jean Carroll is brought, has brought two civil cases against Donald Trump. And there's E. Jean Carroll 1 and E. Jean Carroll 2. E. Jean Carroll 2 happened already. We're waiting now for E. Jean Carroll 1 to go. So there's criminal and civil cases. And it, like I said, it gets very confusing. And then there's yet another civil case involving the Trump family uh, coming up this fall involving a scam that uh, that they um, that they perpetrated on people as well. So you know, there's so so. Let's now talk about the criminal cases, not the civil cases. But again, it's confusing because timing-wise, we all know you have Popak's whiteboard, right? That he puts up with the dates of when cases chicken go. Shit. The first case we have going is, is this fall. Is that case I just talked about in the state of New York, the Attorney General, Letitia James, and that's supposed to go in October. Then let's talk about the criminal cases that we have coming up. Uh, we have the um, the Stormy Daniels case, right, that was brought, the case involving the hush money payments while he was president uh, of the United States. That case where Judge Alvin Hellerstein in federal court just recently removed the case yeah, or he, Trump removed the case to federal court saying, I don't want to be prosecuted by Judge Mershon and Alvin Bragg in state court. I'm the ex-president. I want to be prosecuted in federal court. 
So he went to federal court. He asked Judge Hellerstein whether he'll take the case federally. And Judge Hellerstein just wrote a scathing decision, basically saying to Trump, no, this is criminal. He, he, made, he used language that basically said, I find that there's evidence that he committed these offenses and it belongs in state court because this was entirely personal. This was not anything involving his presidency or, or under the color of law, uh, of federal law or federal defenses, even though he was president when he sat in the Oval Office and wrote those checks to Michael Cohen, uh, who was his personal attorney at the time. So that case where Alvin Bragg is uh, prosecuting that is, is scheduled to go in March. And then this week, Judge Eileen Cannon, who's the federal judge overseeing the Mar-a-Lago criminal case in Fort Pierce, Florida. She just scheduled, uh, she just ruled that that case is going to go in May of 2024. So we got a lot going on in the Trump world. And we also know that there are two more indictments coming, right? Fonnie Willis, a state court prosecutor in the state of Georgia in Fulton County. She is expected to bring a sweeping RICO indictment uh, in the coming weeks, uh, potentially in uh, late July to August. And she's already sworn in a grand jury there. And Trump, again, has been trying to, he went, he went straight to the Georgia Supreme Court to try to get them to say, oh, you know, let's disqualify her, let's disqualify the judge, Let's not let her use the grand jury report that she the, of the special grand jury that you know just sat and took testimony and heard evidence. But so that that he's trying to do that, but that's going full steam ahead. And we think she signaled to the world. She said it was because you know for security reasons she wanted to let people know uh, when this indictment's coming. But I think it was also a signal to Jack Smith so that if Jack Smith wants to go first. Uh, he can. And so Jack Smith sent out a target letter to Donald Trump uh, last week. And Danya and I are going to break down all things that are about that target letter, the Jan 6 indictment that we think is coming. And so I just wanted to frame the, the context of what we're talking about and where we are. Danya, did I forget any cases with the Trump case? Like I said, they're hard to keep track of. You did forget one on the civil side that is actually near and dear to my heart, which is a $500 million civil lawsuit that the former president brought against my client, Michael Cohen. The two have wrangled famously many times before, and they will uh, be up against each other in the district attorney's case out of Manhattan. But in this case, the former president brought this lawsuit against Mr. Cohen, and then did what he tends to do, which has been his most successful and most frequently used defensive gambit. Now he's using it offensively, which is just to try and put it off. So he brought the case and then refused to provide a date for deposition. And just a few days ago, the judge in that case in the Southern District of Florida ordered him to appear for deposition within 45 days. So that's just one more item on the calendar um, that is going to happen. I will be deposing uh, the former president in a matter of wow, so, um, so busy docket uh, for Mr. Trump. Yes, but I think absolutely. I think you got it. There, two two civil cases in the middle of all that. But as you said, big to focus first um, on on the criminal cases, which will take priority, of course, and and you know all the juggling that the various judges are 
going to be uh, having to do in, in terms of actually sequencing and scheduling all of these cases. Yeah, and typically, right, the judges will talk to each other and they will decide, right? It's not up to prosecutors or defense defendants. Nobody, the judge is the one who controls when a case goes, right? It's highly discretionary. Usually it's the court's calendar that will de decide. I mean, sometimes, typically judges, uh, they may talk amongst themselves and try and work out, you know, as a matter of judicial politeness. Uh, how these will all get sequenced. Typically, it is the first filed will be the first tried, but not always. I represented Michael Avenatti in a first filed case. This was the extortion case um, that was brought in the Southern District of New York, alleging that Mr. Avenatti had tried to extort Nike, which I thought was a legally very, very aggressive case. But at the time, I didn't know that there were several other criminal investigations, and those ended up getting scheduled just according to the various judges' calendars. So that, that is typically how it happens. But those, the criminal cases will take priority over the civil ones, even the ones that have already been filed and have already been calendared, almost certainly, uh, if it, you know, depending on what works best for the various judges' schedules. So, you know, the Fani will is... Georgia case is in some ways very similar in terms of the scope and nature of what she's bringing, right? She's bringing a big sweeping RICO case, at least if it's the way we, the way people have been reporting uh, um, with the nationwide fake slates of fake electors and this, you know, big kind of uh, conspiracy to overthrow the election, et cetera. And, and that's similar to what we think Jack Smith is going to bring. What do, you, what do you think about two prosecutors bringing overlapping cases, one state and one federal? Hey, if you're a homeowner and your roof looks like this, you need to pay attention for the next 60 seconds. In this video, you'll discover how you can qualify for a special homeowners program where you can get a brand new roof with the potential to save thousands. Best part, there's no credit required. So if you're in the market, you're looking to replace or repair your roof, this might be the most important video you see all day. Hey, I'm Marilyn, and our mission is to make sure that anyone that needs a roof gets a quality roof for protecting their family during these hard times. We have helped thousands of homeowners get new roofs at the very best price through this limited time program, and now I want to show you how you can be next. The new roof program is a unique and exciting opportunity that allows homeowners to get a roof that will last a lifetime and save thousands. All you have to do is allow us to take before and after pictures of your roof and an honest review of your experience. That's it. It is super easy to apply. It'll take less than a minute. Imagine saving thousands and countless nights worrying about your roof. If you don't fix or repair your roof now, you'll regret it. All you gotta do is click on the link below and see if you can qualify. It'll take less than 30 seconds. I'm gonna bring you to a new window. You can still stay and watch this video. We just want to see if you will qualify. We're just going to ask you a few questions. Remember, in as little as 30 seconds, you'll find out if your home qualifies and when we can come out and do a thorough 60-point inspection. All you got to do is click on the link below. And remember, not everyone in your neighborhood we can take for this program. So spaces are very limited. And if you're in the market to get a new roof and you want to simplify the process, just click on the link below. You'll find out in 30 seconds if you qualify. We look forward to helping you replace your roof.
What if I told you there's a secret hack to get all your favorite TV channels for free, legally? Would you do it? This new groundbreaking discovery gives you access to your favorite channels and movies for free. And greedy cable companies are trying their hardest to make it illegal in the USA. The gadget provides more channels than regular cable companies with HD image. By using state-of-the-art chip technology to catch satellite TV signals, it unlocks content on all major media platforms, all without ever having to pay for expensive contracts or monthly subscriptions. Making traditional cable providers a thing of the past and setup takes less than a minute. Just plug it in, and it works. Signal quality is perfect both in urban areas and in the countryside. It's called TV Boost, and was developed by an ex-cable operator employee from California who turned the TV industry upside down and saved Americans hundreds of dollars in the process. After spending years working as a technician for a local cable operator, Kevin learned that in 2010, Congress passed a new law that stops cable companies from scrambling their TV signals. No existing technology grants free access to these premium TV channels. And ever since that rule came into effect, the price of cable TV has risen by roughly 5.8% each year, which is almost three times the rate of inflation. That's when Kevin realized cable television is a complete ripoff and decided to do something about it. Blessed with years of technical experience and a desire to give back to the community, he cracked the encryption codes cable operators use to encode TV signals and developed a unique plug-and-play device that unlocks every channel in crisp HD. Investors flocked to see what he'd created once word got out, and his friends told him that he would go down in history. But when a cable provider offered him $2.5 million for the rights, Kevin declined the offer and got fired from his job through Three days later. It was then that he realized the impact his invention could have. A group of talented engineers joined him in his war against greedy cable providers. They perfected the device and readied it for mass production. It's the best and most cost-effective way to turn your regular TV into a supercharged home entertainment system. The device unlocks thousands of movies, sports, TV shows, live news, and more. All you need to do is plug it into your TV and it saves the average household up to $2,000 yearly. TV Boost has already shipped over 1 million units since its release. Cable providers are trying to sue it into oblivion. They've already banned it from stores across the U.S., forcing Kevin to sell it exclusively online. Now they're trying to take that away, too, and it looks like they'll succeed. As a parting gift, Kevin is selling TV Boost at a 50% discount before it gets banned everywhere. This has sent demand through the roof. If you want to save big on cable TV for life, click the link below to buy TV Boost from the official website. The founders of TV Boost are so confident in their product that they are offering a 30-day money-back guarantee with no questions asked. But you have to hurry up. With inflation at an all-time high, more orders are coming in fast. So click on the link in this video to get yours with a 50% discount. So interesting. I've seen it happen many times when I was at the Department of Justice. There would often be turf wars between different U.S. attorneys' offices, and that would usually get resolved from on high. You know, someone very high up at the Department of Justice. Here, you've got two different sovereigns, and I think the idea here is, uh, and I don't know that this has been articulated, but at least in my own mind. It, it makes a lot of sense because they are, it's in a way a, a belt and suspenders. If, it, in fact, Mr. Trump should win re-election, I think many of us are highly skeptical that the 
federal case will, in fact, if it already has proceeded, that it will, you know, go forward. There's always, there's appeals, and in this one, there, there probably will be, um, it may ping pong up and down the circuit. But in any event, it, it seems, I would say, likely, given, you know, if, if past is precedent, that there may be pardons in that case if, in fact, there are, if it goes, and if there are convictions. Obviously, there are a couple ifs in the way. Uh, there can be no presidential pardon at the state level. So if the DA in Fulton County moves forward and if she secures indictments and then convictions, it will be impossible for the president or his Department of Justice or his administration to really have much to do with with changing the jury's verdict there. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. Like on, on, the, on the one hand, it's like, let Jack Smith go, don't step on his toes, don't screw up his case. But on the other hand, it makes him pardon-proof. So I lean on the side of, I think it's a good thing for that reason. I'm with you. And we don't know, right? We, we think we know exactly what the contours of each of those indictments will be based on you know witnesses who have spoken about their testimony or leaks to the press. But there were certainly some surprises, some surprises in the first Jack Smith indictment on the Mar-a-Lago document case, and I suspect there will be some, and it should there be another indictment from the special counsel's office. Explain why we don't know. What, explain grand jury secrecy, if you can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just that. It is secret. There are uh, rules uh, within the code book that require secrecy from, so the grand jurors can't speak, the prosecutors can't speak, no one on that side of things can speak. Witnesses are permitted to to talk about what they were subpoenaed about and what testimony they gave. Oftentimes they, they don't for their own prudential reasons, but that's one of the ways that we've been able to get some breadcrumbs mm -hmm. about what's been going on. Um, the press has been you know, very on top of that. Uh, of the grand jury proceedings, you know, waiting outside the courthouse and seeing comings and goings. And certainly there have been leaks we don't know where from, but that more often than not have have proven out. So, but but generally, I mean, it is a crime um, in at the federal level to spill grand jury secrets. And so we really don't know, you know everything that, that eventually will come out. Exactly. But we did hear about a target letter, right, that was sent to Trump. And um, what do you, what, can you just explain what a target letter is? And when you were at the Department of Justice, because I was a state court prosecutor for the better part of three decades, I worked at the Manhattan DA's office, and ultimately I, I ended as a, a Cy Vance's chief assistant. Um, that was not a practice at the Manhattan DA's office to send out target letters. Can you explain what a target letter is, and, and did you send them out, and when do you send them out? Do you always send them out? Just could you give a little bit of a framework of that? At Fry's, you can save big today with sales and promotions on your favorite items. And you'll find it all in the Fry's app. So download the app and start saving more today. Fry's, fresh for everyone.
in the Department of Justice for 11 years, and towards the end, I was Chief Trial Counsel at the Southern District of New York, and then Deputy Chief of the Criminal Division. And so I had a very good handle on the issuance of any target letters. And I cannot, sitting here today, think of any that, that we sent out. I believe Department of Justice during my tenure may have sent some out. They are actually quite rare in my experience and anecdotally. They're not, there's no provision for that in the Department of Justice manual. It, it is more common for a prosecutor to advise defense counsel what status his or her client will have. And there are three main categories. It's target, subject, or witness. Witness is someone who has no exposure and is purely a bystander, for example, is kind of the classic example of that. Subject is someone who's loosely involved in the conduct and it's almost like the prosecutors are not sure yet or are not committing yet as to whether that person will be a witness or eventually a target. And a target is, is the final one, and that's essentially a putative or a likely defendant is, the, is, is really the focus of that criminal investigation. So that's pretty typical for a defense lawyer to ask the prosecutor and for the prosecutor to let that, that lawyer know when various decisions are, are made depending on that classification. So there's no, there is certainly precedent for sending a target letter in this case where you see the special counsel's office going above and beyond, you know, crossing every T and dotting every I that where there's a case where the target is generally aware. And of course, I think everyone on the planet has generally been aware that there is a pending grand jury investigation they will go out of their way, I think, to, you know, to, to, to provide a, a target letter in, in the absence of, you know, just to avoid any doubt and to provide the opportunity for that, that target here, Mr. Trump, to either come in and meet with a grand jury and provide his defenses, which, as we understand it, he declined to do, or to make a pitch to the Department of Justice or here the special counsel's office as to why he should not be indicted or why certain of the charges don't fit or stick. Here we, we have heard that that happened in the first Jack Smith production, the, the Mar-a-Lago indictment. We've heard that it happened in the DA's office case, I, I believe. We've not heard that it happened yet. And so you and I could probably get into a conversation about what that means timing-wise. Probably means either that he's decided, he, Mr. Trump has decided, not to send his lawyers in there, given his, his track rate, or it's going to be a little bit longer because he's going to take advantage of that opportunity. It just hasn't happened yet. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we find out most things from Mr. Trump, right? He's the one who, you know, tells us and um, informs us of, whether he was asked to surrender in a particular case or whether he got a target letter, you know, that, that we don't get that information from law enforcement or from the prosecutors, which is good. They're not supposed to do that. But, you know, I think if he wanted to meet with Jack Smith, I would assume he would have said something. And the fact that he's quiet makes me wonder, 
whether, I mean, I thought, you know, they gave him until midnight, according to Trump, they gave him until midnight Thursday to decide. So I thought we could see an indictment as early as Friday and potentially this or potentially this week. But, you know, maybe he's doing things differently and he wants to do it quietly this time. But we haven't heard, at least from him, that he's looking for an opportunity to to meet with the Justice Department. We also heard from different uh, defense attorneys representing um, Rudy Giuliani and, and John Eastman in particular that uh, and that that they did not receive target letters. And, you know, you would expect those two, along with Mark Meadows and, and Mr. Cheeseborough, you would expect them all to be indicted potentially with Donald Trump on the January 6th indictment. And, you know, that makes me want to ask you a question about um, do you think they're cooperating? Do you think they're going to be indicted? And, and you know, an indictment can be, it's, it's Trump, you know, when you look at Donald Trump, he's like a walking criminal enterprise, right? Like his entire existence and life in some ways is lots and lots and lots of crimes. And so Jack Smith has a lot to choose from, I think. Uh, and the question, though, is, is he going to, what's he going to do, right? Is he going to do a big, giant, sweeping indictment that encompasses all things? Or is he going to be more focused and limited and narrow with charges and defendants? Because, you know, the more defend I mean, I know, I'm sure you, as, as I, have done many kind of multiple defendant cases. And the more defense attorneys' schedules you have to wrestle, you know, into the ground, the the longer it takes to get a case to go to trial, right? I mean, so one potential thing that Jack Smith is doing is saying, you know what, I really want to get a case that is discreet and will go to trial. And so I'm going to limit it to just Donald Trump and I'm going to limit it to, you know, I know the target letter said three different charges. Talk a little bit about this whole thought process and, and where you land with, with, with all of this and whether you think people are cooperating and et cetera. Yeah, I'm thinking about it along the same lines you are. My best guess, and again, you know, we've acknowledged we're reading some tea leaves here. This My is best guess is they are but based on between us, you know, many, many decades of experience. So um, I do think that they are looking for a relatively narrow, streamlined approach, much as they did with the Mar-a-Lago indictment, and are looking to indict Mr. Trump in this first, you know, this initial indictment. And that, but we also have read about or seen signs and reports that this grand jury will remain impaneled. We know about for example, former Commissioner Bernie Carrick will be testifying in the coming weeks, and we've heard about ongoing testimony, which does imply to me that this grand jury is not going to be done with its work once it hands what we all believe will be an initial indictment in the in the coming, we'll call it days, uh, perhaps weeks, but sooner probably rather than later, and that it will keep going. And I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, with your reasoning that what the more individuals, more defendants you introduce into this charging document, the, the more complicated it all gets as a legal matter and really just as a docketing and a calendaring matter. 
And what they are going to want to do is hope that they get a no-nonsense you know, judge who will go the line and make sure that you know this is tight and this gets calendared as quickly as possible and will move the case along and not have to deal with you know other motions or defenses or calendars and so we'll keep it keep it moving along and it could be i also agree with you you know certainly from some of the reporting it is possible that some of those individuals are indeed cooperating whether they have immunity whether they have a non-prosecution agreement whether they have an actual cooperation agreement either way chances are if they're not in that indictment and again, I agree with you that they likely won't be. They they may be in there, not as named defendants, but as 